You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 35, Carolina Regulators and the Battle of Alamance. So last week we discussed the decision to pull British troops out of Boston following the Boston Massacre, as well as the repeal of most of the Townsend duties. These pullbacks ushered in several years of relative calm from the end of 1770 until the end of 1773, when the Tea Party broke the peace once again. Of course, those years were not entirely trouble-free. And today I want to cover one of those problems, the regulator movement in the Carolinas. I find the political evolution of North Carolina and South Carolina during this era particularly fascinating, because they ended up in very different places. In both cases, settlers from the western part of the colony tended to be German, Scotch, or Irish as compared to the English who settled along the east coast. When the revolution broke out, western North Carolina settlers tended to support the patriot cause, while easterners tended to maintain stronger support for the king. In South Carolina, the opposite happened. Easterners joined the Patriot cause, while Westerners tended to remain loyal to the king. I've not really paid much attention to South Carolina since episode 15, when the British crushed the Cherokee Uprising of 1761. After that, the Cherokee gave up a large amount of territory to settle the dispute. Colonial settlers, of course, moved in and set up farms. Although parts of what is known as the Piedmont region of the colony had white colonists who had lived there for a generation or two, the 1760s saw a period of substantial growth. The land settlement came quickly, but government in the new settlements did not keep up with the population boom. This led to what we call the regulator movement. South Carolina regulators were generally farmers and men of property who lived in the western part of the state. These new settlers primarily were not South Carolinians moving west. Rather, they were immigrants moving into the colony. South Carolina had a governor and council appointed by the king. The colonists elected a House of Commons, although property requirements generally limited voting to a relatively small minority of planters. Elected officials had even more stringent requirements. Members had to own 500 acres of land or more, at least 10 slaves or equivalent property, and belong to the Anglican Church. Most of the Western settlers were not Anglicans. They were recent immigrants from Western Pennsylvania, Virginia, and North Carolina. Their families tended to be German, Scotch-Irish, or Welsh. As in England, the colonial legislature did not see any need to redistrict on a regular basis. So even the few men who might qualify to vote did not really have any representation in Charleston. The Piedmont region also had no sheriffs, courts, or jails to maintain law and order so the local property owners formed themselves into vigilante groups known as regulators, 
which enforced their view of the law. Mostly, they targeted what they called hunters. These were essentially homeless people with guns. They roamed the backcountry, killing animals, often farm animals, and left half-eaten carcasses, which attracted wolves and other undesirable wildlife. They would sometimes start fires to chase game at night. They often wandered into Indian reserves, potentially stirring up another war. And sometimes they would steal directly from farmers or even raid isolated farms. There are some stories of some really brutal home invasions during this time. So the regulators first organized to drive these undesirables out of the area. Regulators would go after anyone believed to be guilty of a crime or other undesirable behavior. If a suspect was captured, regulators would most commonly dispense justice with a whipping. Sometimes there would also be a demand that the accused leave the area. Property owners who did something to displease the regulators might find their barn or home burned to the ground. Even suspected prostitutes were subjected to whippings as the regulators attempted to make their territory more respectable. Regulators also had to deal with escaped slaves. The regulators tended to be property owners, many of whom owned slaves. The communities of ruffians living in the backcountry often provided asylum to escaped slaves, which not only made it easier for slaves to escape, but also created a core that might eventually organize into a slave rebellion. Regulators operated for most of the 1760s, providing the only real source of law, frontier justice for the region. But even the regulators wanted a more official and permanent form of law enforcement. So they lobbied the governor and the assembly for influence in the government. They also wanted representation to put in place a more legitimate and stable government in the West. In 1768, the government finally obliged, creating new judicial districts for the western regions. It also organized new electoral districts. Finally, after elections, the West sent representatives to the legislature in Charleston in 1770. Of course, by then, it was kind of pointless. As I mentioned a few episodes back, after the legislature had sent money to John Wilkes in 1769, the South Carolina governor prevented the assembly from appropriating any more funds for anything. And in 1771, the government stopped all legislation. So, the 1770 victory got the Westerners representation in a legislature that could not pass any legislation. Yay! Even so, the creation of the judicial districts, along with sheriffs and courts, largely put an end to the regulator movement in South Carolina. Landowners could still serve as posses when the sheriff needed them, but the law enforcement system was at least administered by government officials. Despite bringing Westerners into colonial politics, the East Coast elites and the backcountry regulators remained divided in many ways, religious, social, and cultural. When the Eastern colonists largely joined in the rebellion against Britain a few years later, the inland groups tended to side with the Loyalists and fought with the British when the war came to South Carolina. The North Carolina regulators evolved in a very different way. If the South Carolina regulators complained about not enough government, the North Carolina regulators complained about too much, or at least too corrupt. Settlers in the western parts of North Carolina came from similar backgrounds as their western South Carolina neighbors. They also encountered some of the same fundamental social, economic, and religious differences from those controlling the colony along the east coast. 
Like its southern neighbor, North Carolina had a crown-appointed governor and council, as well as an elected legislature. Voting again was limited to free men of property, and districting strongly favored those living along the coast. The eastern-dominated colonial government appointed tax collectors, sheriffs, and judges to administer the inland counties. Now, I know it's hard to believe today, but in the mid-1700s, North Carolina often had corrupt government local officials who harassed and ripped off the residents. The tax system was bad enough. The colony had a poll tax, which unlike an income or property tax, meant that every person paid the same amount. It did not matter if you were a subsistence dirt farmer or a plantation owner with 10,000 acres. So as you might guess, the system was particularly tough on the poor. Government officials earned a living by going out and extracting money from tax delinquents by any means necessary. Some had a nasty habit of collecting a tax, then losing the paperwork and demanding that the taxpayer pay a second time. Another big problem was the lack of cash in the economy. As I discussed in earlier episodes, the lack of gold and silver in the colonies caused serious economic problems. Some colonies had tried to circulate paper money, but London usually did not allow that. In North Carolina, especially in the West, most people operated on a barter system with very little cash circulating. Keeping money in your home was actually dangerous as it made you a target for theft. Taxes, however, had to be paid in gold or silver. If a taxpayer did not have enough ready cash when the taxman came around, the tax collector could put a distrain on his property, effectively seizing it. The tax collector received a fee for doing so and therefore had every incentive not to give the taxpayer any time to come up with the cash. Within days, the state would sell the owner's property, usually at a cut price to a friend of the tax collector, who again collected a fee for his work on the tax sale. Collectors also added fees if they had to come visit the home of a taxpayer who did not show up to pay taxes at a designated time and place. Tax collectors often would not give much of any notice when they would arrive, and often colonists would find the original tax bill to be only a small portion of the total fees added to their bill. Now, some locals attempted to take the tax collectors to court, but the tax collector was the local sheriff or deputy, and he often colluded with judges and lawyers to extract even more court fees and legal costs before finding against the taxpayer anyway. Westerners did not have many political options either, Local citizens held town meetings and sent petitions to the governor for reform, but all of these seemed to fall on deaf ears. Like South Carolina, North Carolina apportioned most of its representatives in the East, meaning the Westerners were very underrepresented in the legislature. For example, two Western counties contained 6,000 people and had four representatives. At the same time, five small counties along the coast had a total of less than 2,000 people but had 25 representatives. Although they had some representatives in the West, they certainly did not have enough to convince the legislature to initiate any sort of reform. In 1764, William Tryon arrived as the new lieutenant governor. Tryon was a British military officer with close ties to the top of London's power elite. His wife had been maid of honor to Queen Charlotte. She was also the family friend of Lord Hillsborough, the Secretary of State, who appointed Tryon as Lieutenant Governor. Tryon became Governor the next year after his predecessor died, 
one of his first controversies came with the Stamp Act protests of 1765 and 66. The governor's strong support for the act and its enforcement made him enemies throughout the colony. After the stamp tax repeal in 1766, the governor tried to reduce tensions and rebuild relationships in a customarily North Carolina way. He held a barbecue. He roasted three whole oxen, brought in wagon loads of beer and bread, and invited just about the whole colony to attend. Many people came, but they were not ready to make nice. Many protested by taking the food and beer and dumping it on the ground or in the river. A massive fight ensued, which included a relative of the governor's wife being killed in a duel. This incident pretty much poisoned any chance of a good relationship between the governor and the colonists. The following year, he made things worse by demanding 20,000 pounds sterling to build a governor's palace for himself. For many taxpayers, especially in the West, Tryon's palace was the last straw. Rather than reforming the burdensome and corrupt tax system, the governor was adding a huge new expense that would result in even higher taxes. To protest the corrupt system of tax collection, the citizens of Orange County in the West refused to pay any of their taxes in 1768. Instead, they gave it to their representative in the legislature, Harmon Husband. When the assembly met, the governor demanded to know why no one from the county had paid taxes. Husband threw a bag of gold and silver on the table and told the governor that he had all the taxes. He was prepared to pay the treasury in exchange for a receipt showing the taxes had been paid. Husband announced that he had acted as tax collector to keep much of it from disappearing as it always seemed to happen. In response, the governor had husband arrested and thrown in jail. He released him several days later after learning that 2,000 regulators were advancing on the jail to free him by force. Not wanting to have an organized political force against him, the governor divided Orange County into three separate counties. He also forced through legislation prohibiting the sale of gunpowder or shot to anyone in those three counties until further notice. With the government refusing to consider any reforms, the regulators simply shut down the government in the western counties. Armed militia prevented any sheriffs, tax collectors, or judges from operating. One particular target of the regulators was a man named Edmund Fanning, a friend of the governor and responsible for tax collection in Orange County and also the sheriff of Hillsborough. Fanning was the personification of the corrupt tax collector for the regulators. He had built up large land holdings in the area, much of it from land sold at tax auctions. In 1770, in what became known as the Hillsborough Riot, regulators shut down the court, seized Fanning and another lawyer, and beat the men senseless. They ran Fanning out of town, braided an effigy of him through the streets, and damaged his home and other property. Essentially, the demands of the regulators were twofold and quite reasonable. First, they wanted to put an end to the corrupt local government that was cheating them out of their property. Second, they wanted a reapportionment of the legislature, which currently benefited the East. But Tryon was not ready to make peace with troublemakers. Rather than compromise, he got the legislature to pass the Riot Act of 1771. The act effectively redefined protest as treason. It made it a felony for ten or more people to assemble after being warned to disperse. 
It exempted officials from prosecution for the murder or injury of any rioters. Any accused rioters who did not voluntarily submit to arrest within 60 days were declared outlaws who could be shot on sight. The law also permitted the government to seize and sell any of their property. Although the law would expire after one year, they had made it retroactive so they could prosecute rioters from earlier events. Finally, the law authorized the governor to raise a militia at public expense to execute the new policies. In March 1771, Governor Tryon assembled a 1,000-man militia and marched them into the heart of regulator country. The two sides played a game of cat and mouse for several months. Finally, in May, the two sides formed for a showdown. The judges in Hillsborough informed the governor that they could not hold a court session due to the regulators. Governor Tryon assembled his militia and men to move on Hillsborough to protect the court. Another militia force of about 300, under General Hugh Waddle, advanced on Hillsborough from another direction. The regulators, however, blocked Waddle's advance and captured part of his supply train, including ammunition. Tryon moved his larger force to join Waddle and confront the regulators. The two groups met near Alamance Creek on May 16, 1771. By most estimates, the regulators had about 2,000 men under arms, well outnumbering the militia. But Governor Tryon was a professional soldier by training and also had several artillery pieces with him. By contrast, the regulators did not have any officers in overall command. They were far too disorganized to make effective use of their numbers. By some accounts, the militia were reluctant to fire on the regulators, who were in many cases their friends and neighbors. Tryon ordered them to fire, but at one point allegedly had to say, fire on them or fire on me. The militia engaged the regulators in a heated battle, lasting several hours. Some stories say that the regulators fought until they ran out of ammunition, then simply got up and went home. But the regulator lines did break and the militia spent much of the battle chasing down regulators through the woods. In the end, Governor Trion and his militia controlled the field and completely dispersed the regulators. The militia reported nine dead and 61 wounded after the battle. The number of regulators killed and wounded is not reported in any official records. Some reports indicate that they lost a similar number in killed and wounded. Other reports indicate the regulators took as many as 300 killed and wounded. The militia captured only 15 prisoners, one of whom they hanged that evening. The following day, the governor offered amnesty for most of the regulators as long as they agreed to end their resistance and swear loyalty to the colony. Eventually, more than 6,000 people took advantage of this, taking an oath of allegiance and receiving a pardon. Tryon, however, did not give amnesty to the leaders of the revolt. He tried 12 leaders under the Riot Act and hanged six of them. Many regulators took their families and left the colony shortly thereafter. Among those leaving the colony was Harmon Husband, who had led the political opposition to the governor and was with the regulators shortly before the Battle of Alamance. As a Quaker, he did not participate in the fighting. Even so, as a leader of the resistance, he decided his time in North Carolina was over. Husband fled to Maryland and eventually settled in what became western Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh. He wrote an account of the regulator movement 
which unfortunately I cannot find in electronic format. As a pacifist, Husband sat out the revolution, but would have one more act near the end of his life as a leader of the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s. A London generally credited Tryon with his firm and successful termination of the backcountry resistance. Later that year, Hillsborough promoted him to governor of New York, and he headed north, taking Fanning along with him as his personal secretary. His successor, Governor Martin, tried a radical new approach and actually investigated some of the complaints of corruption in the western counties. He instituted some reforms and even prosecuted a few of the corrupt local officials. Some historians say the Battle of Alamance should be considered the first battle of the Revolutionary War. I'm not convinced that is a fair characterization. The Regulator War did not involve the British Army. The Regulators continued to profess loyalty to the King and British rule. Their dispute was about local internal colonial corruption, not British taxes or trade. Still, the Regulator movement stands as evidence that Americans throughout the continent would stand up and fight for their rights with guns if necessary. Next week, Rhode Island colonists attack and sink a Navy ship, the HMS Gaspee. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.